Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Coming in the second half of today's show, journalist, humorist, and award-winning author Matt Geiger. He gives a nod to the limits of human knowledge and understanding, especially his own, in his new book of stories and essays. It's called Astonishing Tales, with a caveat that your astonishment may vary. (laughs) First, I'm very pleased to welcome award-winning playwright Sarah Rule. She's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, uh, Tony Award nominee and author of the book of 100, it's called 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write, and that was a New York Times notable book of the year. She's been the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, uh, the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, and the list of uh, accolades goes on. She's currently on the faculty of the Yale School of Drama and lives in Brooklyn with her family. She's joining us today. Uh, Welcome, Sarah Rule. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And I want to uh, let listeners know the name of your new book is called Letters from Max. It's a book of friendship. And uh, it has credit for Sarah Rule and Max Ritvo. And um, you were a distinguished author, playwright, twice a finalist for the Pulitzer, as I just said. And Max was a student of yours in your playwriting class. So tell us how you guys met and connected enough to write a book together or start, mm. start writing Exchanging Letters, which the book is yeah. based on. So I was teaching an undergraduate course at Yale, and, and usually I teach in the, in the drama school, which is graduate students. But this was a unique case where I was teaching undergraduates, and it was supposed to be an advanced playwriting class, so I had been reading through piles of applications, and I had put Max's application in the no pile because he'd never written a play before. But then I looked more closely at his application, and it said he was a poet and a comedian, and I thought, well, funny poets are rare and wonderful, and also the synergy between poetry and comedy itself kind of makes a play. So I I admitted Max, and he just was an extraordinary young man from the moment he first walked into my classroom. He his mind seemed to make connections, you know, 10 times faster than other people's minds. Um, and he was really a genius poet. And um, in in the course of the semester, he found out that he had a recurrence of Ewing sarcoma, which is a pediatric cancer he'd had in high school. And so um, at first, I just reached out to Max to try to you know, let him know that I'd be supportive, that, you know, through his surgeries and his chemotherapy, we would do our best to, you know, figure out deadlines for his plays. I wanted to help him graduate. Um, but as we got to know each other, a deep friendship formed. And I think it was partly the urgency of time, you know, knowing that Max might not have that much time. And in fact, he, he lived four years um, between the time I, I met him and the time he died. Um, and in that time, he moved to New York, uh, got an MFA in poetry, published two amazing books of poetry, got married, um, 
really had used every minute in the most extraordinary way. And during that time, we corresponded. And at a point, we had sort of 300 letters back and forth on on a wide variety of topics. And we thought, well, why don't we make a book out of this? And after Max died, I I finished um, putting the book together. And that, that became Letters from Max. Right, right. And you say um, your hope... Uh Max had this openness to life, even though he was dying, and Mm -hmm. that you hoped that putting this book together, the book would fall into the hands of someone needing comfort. Mm. We did, and I don't know if that means someone who has been bereaved, someone who's facing mortality, um, someone who's lonely. Uh, You know, I think... To me, there was great solace and comfort in the friendship I had with Max, um, and we we really became colleagues. We exchanged plays and poems and rants and songs, um, but it was more the feeling of being deeply listened to by another human being, mm-hmm. and, um, and Max was an extraordinary listener as well as an extraordinary writer and talker, and I guess we hoped that our explorations of everything from the afterlife to our mutual love of soup. For some reason, we both really just like soup. Um, (laughs) Would be, uh, would be a solace to to somebody. Right, right. And you wrote somewhere in the book, and I I don't quite remember where it was, but I do remember reading um, that poetry to him really was about not just creating a voice, but, but listening, having Mm -hmm. people listen. Mm -hmm. It really, and that's rare, I think, uh, for, I mean, I, I do think Max was a genius, and a lot of people who knew him felt that way. And I think sometimes geniuses aren't that great at listening to other people. Um, and Max was one of these equal opportunity talkers and listeners. Um, he was sort of, he couldn't bear uh, receiving without giving. And I think that's partly why his relationships with with teachers, and I wasn't the only one, became really like relationships between colleagues at a point because Max would say, well, well send me your poem. I, I, I send me your <laughs> manuscript. I'm willing to read it. And his comments were always so um, insightful and incredible that he, he really flipped, flipped the relationship until um, you were speaking with a friend. Right, right. And one of the things he said, um, so we get a really deep, understanding of Max uh, as deep as we can in the short period of time we have here mm-hmm. um, is that he he said humor isn't a shield it makes our sadness rhyme with joy what did that mean to you Sarah oh, I love that so much yeah he says humor isn't a defense it's almost a it's almost a mnemonic device that makes sadness rhyme with joy I mean I think I've always felt that way in my own writing, that um, these distinctions between comedy and tragedy are really just a trap, mm-hmm. and that you need both sides to see the fullness of human life. And I think what Max meant was, when contemplating suffering, I mean, I think some people say, oh, if you're laughing, if you're making a joke, if you're finding delight or mirth, you're running away from the suffering. Mm-hmm. And Max didn't feel that. He thought that... Um, he thought that that joy was just as much a part of it, that it was not an escape, it was not a delusion, um, that finding humor and finding joy in the present moment was deeply, deeply a part of what he was going through. And you see it in his poetry where there's a an incredible sense of humor and joy um, and pleasure in the body, even when the body's 
betraying you in this profound way. And I think some people think that the book would be, you know, incredibly dark or depressing, but I think there's so much humor and life in Max, um, and the exchange is, is focused on, on exactly that sort of mnemonic, how, how do you rhyme sadness with joy? Yeah, and um, a lot of um, questions that you raise, too, in the book. And, you know, when I was reading this, I remember uh, my dad dying. Uh, on a, He died on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Saturday morning up until about 2 o'clock, he was cracking jokes. And, yep. and he died that evening. And I told that somebody, and she said, oh, he was just trying to not focus on the inevitable. And I said, no, that's who he was. And I think that's mm-hmm. who he wanted to go out as, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wanted to put us at ease, too. Precisely, and I think there's such a hero heroism in that. And my father, who died of cancer I when did. I was 20, was precisely the same way, making jokes to take care of others, making jokes to continue to delight right. um, was part of that heroism. And in a way, it took care of him, too, because by making people laugh, he was experiencing joy. Mm. And putting the book together, Max's mother helped you uh, do this uh will help you with some of the um photographs and stuff so tell us about how she got involved and what that meant to her i mean imagine it was somewhat healing for her well his mom is really an extraordinary person who suffered this you know unimaginable loss and i really felt strongly that i wanted the family to be happy with with the book um uh, and his loved ones and his dear ones to be happy, or, or it seemed like a complete failure as a project. Um, and so I, you know, I consulted her along the way and also just made sure I had the chronology right um, and asked for permission to use a couple of photographs. And um, I was, you know, I, I got to know... I got Max had a kind of associative property with his friendships, you know, in the same way that in geometry, one number associates with another, and then it keeps going on. And um, mm-hmm. it was a real privilege and joy to get to know the people he was close with. Right. One thing you write uh, in the back of the book that uh, Max wouldn't want you moralizing, as he put it, mm-hmm. this this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no lesson. So, what did you take away from that? I think he Max was sort of disgusted by by um, cancer narratives that were treacly and that reminded him of a Lifetime movie, and he would not want to be at the center of one of those. And I think primarily he wanted to be remembered for his writing and for his language. And so it's always it's always my greatest joy when someone reads the letter book or reads something I wrote about Max and says, "And now I'm reading his poetry." And I say, "Oh, good. That's that's the goal. That's the point." Um, and when he was alive, he wanted to arrange the letters thematically by subject matter, and we spent some time trying to arrange them that way. And they they weren't really work; they had sort of no narrative power that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, Max must hate the idea of chronology because he knows he won't be there at the end, and the chronology implies an ending. Um, and I think you know, we were so. There was so there, while he was alive, there was so much to be thinking about besides getting a book ready for publication, right. and it was hard. And so Max sort of left it to me to finish it. And maybe it's because I'm a playwright that chronology comes easily to me. 
Right. But I think it's also that I was just as, as interested and thought readers might be just as interested in how a friendship accrues over time um, as they would be in, in Max and, 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 and I philosophizing about this and that. Right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to look at uh, some of the, the things you talked about in those letters. And I just found the words that um, Max had written. He was 20 when he wrote this in his application to get into your playwriting class. And, uh, and this kind of stuck with me about his desire to listen. Give me some language and give me some listeners. Let them do monstrous things that they don't intend to do make, to do to make them happy and unhappy. We're all just figuring out how to listen. So I thought that summed up. Uh, what I we're love that yeah. so much. I mean, yeah. can you believe in a 20-year-old's application to get into a creative writing class? It's just it's beautiful. Really, really. All right, my guest is Sarah Rule. Her new book is called Letters from Max, A Book of Friendship. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Kathy Cooper, and every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll be hosting Lost and Found. We'll be discussing all types of losses, but it's not going to be the doom and gloom hour. It'll be an hour of education, support, validation, and yes, we will have a little bit of humor. So won't you join me Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Lost and Found, because every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning Seattle filmmaker, author, speaker, and activist, John DeGraff. An icon in the documentary film industry, John DeGraff has written and produced more than 40 films and authored three books, including the highly acclaimed Affluenza. His latest film, Torn Between Two Worlds, explores a thriving California city, striving to be a fully self-sustainable community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today going against the grain has never been this much fun alternative talk 1150 and welcome back everyone you're listening to conversations live with vicky st Clair, and my guest in this segment is sarah rule she is an award-winning playwright and author 
her new book is called Letters from Max, A Book of Friendship. And it's co-authored with Max Ritvo because it's about a series of letters that went on between them. And then you give some kind of narrative um, throughout the book after most of the chapters too, don't you, mm-hmm. Sarah? Yeah. So I have, um, I want to look at some of the letters uh, that you exchange and that are in the book. And um, in one of them, you say, um, don't worry if your poetry feels insulated or indulgent. Poetry by nature is insulated or indulgent. Uh, from <laughs> Whitman to Strand to Dickinson. And you go on to say, only some small degree of emotional restraint keeps it from being indulgent and uh, sharing it some keeps it from being insulated. So would you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, I think I wrote that to Max when he was, he might have been coming back from um, a reading in which it was a very funny letter and he was talking about a, a woman poet who he found the work utterly opaque, he didn't understand it, and he came up and said, oh, I really liked your work, but I wasn't sure what I was supposed to get and out of it. And she said, nothing. I didn't want you to get anything out of it. She <laughs> <laughs> was like, she was sort of being deliberately opaque. And I think I was trying to encourage Max to be transparently himself in his poetry and not to worry if he was being transparent, you know, not to find it a source of embarrassment. And on the other hand, um, that there is that form formalism can protect you also in poetry from just being, you know, a total mess on the page and, you know, having a, a kind of confessional lyricism that just bleeds into everybody in an embarrassing, you know, gross way, um, mm-hmm. that there's a kind of equipoise um, between the two that I think Max Max um, had between being transparent, being totally direct with the reader and also keeping some secrets for himself. Mm. And you're going to share one of his poems with us right now. Yeah, I um, I love this poem so much called Afternoon. Um, and it, it, there, there's a conversation in the book, too, where Max had told me um, that he was afraid of death. And I said, if you want to talk about it, I'm happy to. And, and he talked about the image of feeling like death was might be like when you when you leave your apartment and you've forgotten something but you don't know what you've forgotten and then um, later he sent me a, this poem called afternoon afternoon when I was about to die my body lit up like when I leave my house without my wallet what am I missing I asked patting my chest pocket and I am missing everything living that won't come with me into the sunny afternoon My body lights up for life, like all the wishes being granted in the fountain at the same instant, all the coins burning the fountain dry, and I give my breath to a small bird-shaped pipe. In the distance, behind several voices haggling, I hear a sound like beads clicking together, like a game of pool played with people by machines. Quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Max, uh, Max's debut book, uh, he actually never got to see the finished book, but he did get to see the galleys, as I understand yep. it, and he got to see the book cover. So at least he got to see what was coming. It's called The Four Reincarnations, and that's a book of yep. poetry, right? And it's a beautiful book. And um, I mean, he got to edit the galleys. He got to have it in his hands. He knew it was coming. He knew he knew the publisher, Milkweed Editions, which also did his other book and our book together. You know, it was a beautiful, nurturing press. And 
what he didn't know is after four reincarnations came out, it it sold incredibly well, such that I think its sales topped the Odyssey the second day of its publication. Wow. It um, seems so crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Max's mom would write me and say, more useless glory for Max, you mm-hmm. know, which I thought was so moving. When um, she all she really wanted to do was hug him. She didn't care exactly. about the accolades. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. of course, she cares about his literary legacy. and um, But yeah, I think for those close to Max, it's probably a double-edged sword. Um, you know, the more his words are in the ether, you feel like, oh, thank God his legacy is getting preserved. But where is he? You know? Right, right. One of the things you talk about in the book is reincarnation. Uh, Max, we should say, was quite irreligious, correct? I mean, he was he was in an interesting mix because on one hand, he was a deeply spiritual person. And I think part of that came from his view of poetry as a as a really spiritual enterprise. Um, but he was not religious and certainly not in an institutional way. And he mm-hmm. was raised Jewish. Um, he was kind of into meditation and read widely in different spiritual traditions. But I don't it's not as though he picked one and stuck to it. Right. Right. And and so you write in the uh but you had written this uh, play called The Oldest Boy, mm-hmm. um, which you sent to Max to read. And you write that you'd read a lot of books for research while writing the play. And and it seems that your personal views on reincarnation changed throughout the process. You write in your letter to Max, I came to see reincarnation as a real possibility, as likely as any other version of the afterlife that I'd been exposed to from the heaven of my Catholic childhood or the void of my atheist teen. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so this this play, The Oldest Boy, came from a story um, that, that actually my babysitter told me, and my babysitter's Tibetan, and she's a devout Tibetan Buddhist, and she had known friends who are Tibetan who had a restaurant in Boston, and one day some monks appeared and said, we think your child is the reincarnation of this high lama in India, and so we have to educate your child at the monastery in India. And I said, oh, my God, well, what did they do? And my sister said, well, of course they, they went. They they had, they had gave the child to the monastery because it was a big honor to have your your baby be a reincarnated soul of a very high teacher or master. Um, and in, in our Western, you know, obsession with attachment parenting and being close to one's children, it, it seemed almost unimaginable, this act of non-attachment to give your child over to a monastery. Um so I wrote a play about it called The Oldest Boy, and it was about a Tibetan man and a um, an American woman who have a child who's identified as a reincarnated llama, and they have to decide what to do, and the, the mother's really resistant to giving the baby over to the monastery. So it's, it's partly about cultural difference, but also I, I find it moving, the idea and the, the metaphor um, of the looking for the looking for the teacher and the student. You know, this idea that when you lose your teacher, you actually look for your teacher as a baby and then right. you educate that um, student. So it creates this unbroken lineage between teacher and student, which I found quite beautiful. And then when I read these bucket buckets full of books on the topic, and literally I would sort of drag suitcases around because I also felt so ill-equipped to write a play outside my own religious tradition. I was raised Catholic. Um, and the more I read about it, I kind of thought, yeah, makes perfect sense. Reincarnation makes perfect sense. Um and it became a it became a kind of um 
a turning point in my own my own religious life. Mm, interesting. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions about uh, playwriting before we've only got a few minutes left here. But how did the the journey of exchanging letters with Max change your perspective on life and, and death? And how did compiling the book change you? Mm. Well, I think Max Max's impact on me, uh, I think for one thing, it's to be demonstrative with your friends. Um you know, I think my family uh, is more sort of tribal and, and, you know, you don't say I love you outside of romantic relationships or um, or nuclear family. And when my own dad had cancer, we actually had to learn how to say I love you. It was always deeply implicit, um, but we wouldn't say it. So I think there's something about Max's demonstrativeness and generosity with so many people in his life. He collected friends in this wonderful way um, and was very demonstrative with them, telling them exactly what they meant to him so that he didn't have any hanging threads, um, which he didn't. And in doing so, I I think he put so much love into the world. Um, So I think that had a huge impact on me. And compiling the book, I think, was um, it was a labor of love. It was a way of mourning. It was a way of trying to make sense of something that seemed senseless, you know, losing this young, um, incredible talent, but also this this really good, deeply good person mm. at such a young age is such a hard thing to bear, you know, when things seem out of order like that. Um, I think the the book was a way of, of making sense of and... Um, and of inviting the reader into Max's world, uh, you know, hoping that, that the letters book would be a kind of gateway drug to Max's other poetry. Right, right. Well, the book is Letters from Max, a book of friendship, and uh, it's got rave reviews. And um, and I, I think, as you said, you hoped that it would find itself in the hands of people who need comfort. I, I think it will, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I want to just, before we let you go today, because you're, uh, you know, uh, such a highly acclaimed playwright, and and you're also an author. How do you uh, how do you approach writing a play? Is it different to writing a book? Do you, I, I and I asked this because Max had asked you in one of the letters. He said, "I want to know about your process, Sarah." And you said, "I don't know anything about my process other than it involves a cup of tea." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm really addicted to Yorkshire gold tea, but <laughs> oh, my brother-in-law uh, would love you. <laughs> right, so good. <laughs> but I always have been slightly, purposely opaque about what my process is. But I do think um, I see all the genres as deeply connected, and and I see a play as containing all other genres. So it contains story, it contains poetry, song. Um, it has an argument, so it has the essay form. So I see them all as sort of one, and so I didn't. I don't see it as a totally different enterprise to write a play as to write, um, as to work, you know, compile a book of letters with Max. Um, and someday, if I get enough emotional distance from it, maybe I could make the make the book of letters into a play. But I think um, at the outset, the grief felt so personal and so on the surface that it also a book seemed like a more it seemed nice that you could open and shut it. Right, <laughs> you know, right. You can't do that with a play. Right. 
Well, um, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of uh, mileage from this. It's going to continue. So um, I know Max was just 26 when he died. Um, listeners can find out more about Sarah at sarahrulepwright.com. A final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today, Sarah? Oh, a final thought. I mean, I guess just a sense of gratitude for Max's friendship in the world. I think the world is a dark place right now. It's a place of some brutality. And um, and Max was all about um, pouring pouring love and, um, and inspiration and, um, and deep thinking into everything he did. So I think I think his spirit is really an antidote for, for our times. Lovely. Well, thanks for being with us, Sarah. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Take care. And again, the website, you can find out more about Sarah. It's sarahrulepwright.com and the book Letters from Max, A Book of Friendship. Please stay with us. When we come back, we're going to hear about uh, some astonishing tales from the author Matt Geiger. Stay with us. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning Seattle filmmaker, author, speaker, and activist John DeGraff. An icon in the documentary film industry, John DeGraff has written and produced more than 40 films and authored three books, including the highly acclaimed Affluenza. His latest film, Torn Between Two Worlds, explores a thriving California city striving to be a fully self-sustainable community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Paws has the dog or cat of your dreams just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at paws.org or call 425-787-2500. has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, 
self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable at conversationslive.net. Working hard to put a smile on your face. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Uh, my next guest is humorist, journalist, and award-winning author. His debut book, the Geiger Counter, raised by Wolves and Other Stories, won first prize in the 2018 Midwest Book Awards and was named as a finalist in the Next Generation Indie Book Awards and American Book Fest. And he's uh, also the winner of numerous journalism awards. And uh, I have to share one axe throwing competition, <laughs> which we'll probably talk about in our conversation here. Um, and some of the other stuff that uh, is, is uh, unique to Matt. His new book is uh, his new book is called Astonishing Tales, Stories and Essays. And then there's a, a little caveat here. Your astonishment may vary. Matt Geiger, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's our pleasure. And I'm going to make you a happy man here, Matt, to kick off because I read on your Facebook page a post where you said, anytime I'm able to talk about Dostoevsky, Tolstoy and Chekhov, in a single interview, I'm happy. So let's kick off. <laughs> let's kick off with that. Um, wow, you're not messing around, yeah. <laughs> so I read that you um, you actually read Chekhov the whole time you were writing this book, I Astonishing did. Tales. Yeah. What is it yeah. about him that appeals to you, inspires you, informs you? Oh my gosh, he's so uh, and, and uh, he's so funny for one thing, um, and 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 dreary. But those two aren't as mutually exclusive, I think, as some people suspect um he is um he's so precise and i really do i i i think he's fun i read him because i enjoy it uh, because i enjoy him but also it's almost a kind of medicine you just take a little check off every day um and it helps you see the world better because he's the master of this thing and there's a word for it although there, there is not really an english word for it but in russian it's called astronomy uh and it, it's where you disrupt your uh, habitual perception of the world in order to make things weird, and therefore see them better. And I, I think when you see better, you laugh more, you see more beauty. Um, your, your prior uh, guest was correct. It is a dark world, and, and it's an unsettling world and a violent world. Uh, but that stuff is right in your face. You don't have to look very far to see it. But sometimes seeing the beauty and the humor takes a little more clarity of sight, and that's what Chekhov does. Right, right. And so then what is it about um, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky that appeals to you? Well, I do love, um, uh, I, my degree is in philosophy, actually, and so you, it's, it's important that you read those great Russian authors. Um, they, they appeal to very different things in me. Um, Dostoevsky, I feel like you, you have to read to, to, for the psychology of it. Um, it. And he 
uh, kind of notorious, right, because it's so grim and, and, and dark and, and long and sprawling and everything. Um, but Tolstoy is different. He comes at it, he has such a theological perspective mm. to the world. You can't really separate out his um, the, the way he sees the, the cosmos from the way he writes and everything. But what I'm amazed by is both of those, those are three of my all-time favorite authors. That They're all so wonderful. But Chekhov, who wrote these tiny little stories, two, three pages long, you know, and, and some of my favorites really are that short. Right. Um, he's their equal, uh, at least in my mind. And, and they wrote these massive, you know, thousand-page books and things. And right. so uh, I, I like that about, about, about all of them. It doesn't detract from them. But Chekhov is certainly something if he can do in three pages what they can do in a thousand. And they certainly offered a lot to the world because they're still around and still used and still used very much in philosophy and in writing, uh, you know, oh, yeah. examples too. Um, yeah. So you, 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 this book, uh, Astonishing Tales, you give a nod to the, the limits of human knowledge and understanding, and you say especially, especially your own. Um, right. So tell us uh, how you describe the book in your own words and why you put this together. Yeah, well, I... Um when I sat down to write it, I put down uh, a quote by Borges, um, and it's about it's, a, it's about this civilization, and he, and he says that their philosophers aren't aren't seeking uh, the truth or even an approximation of it. What, what they're seeking is astonishment or awe, um, and I I wanted to do that in these stories. Um, and so, if you look at the table of contents, it's probably very hard to figure out what the book is about. It's about parenting and having chickens in your backyard and the apocalypse <laughs> and Neanderthal DNA and boxers and burlesque stars, and you know. But what it's all about is um, seeing the world around us and seeing how strange it is and, and, and seeing it all as if for the first time. Um, and uh, and that was, that was the, the thread I tried to weave, you know, hopefully um, through most of these stories. Right, right. So I want to, um, let's begin looking at a couple of the stories in the book. And the first one, uh, on the cover of your book, you have a picture of a young woman from a past time. And uh, she actually is, a, uh, she's actually in her 80s now, um, and a friend of yours. Her name is Bonnie Logan. Um, so talk to us, tell us about Bonnie Logan and why you wanted to use her face on the cover of this book. Yeah, so Bonnie is a, is a, is a, is a, inspiration for many reasons. Um, I, I met Bonnie because um, I saw someone who many people would kind of marginalize, marginalize as a quote-unquote little old lady uh, with her walker, you know, getting around very slowly. And, mm -hmm. and someone said, um, and most people would just kind of see her and then not see her, you know, she'd just be this uh, supporting character. They wouldn't think anything of it. And someone said, you should ask her about her life. Um, and so I did, because I'm curious. I'm always looking for stories, and everyone had stories. And so she sat me down, and we had breakfast together. We had pancakes and black coffee, and then we met again and had more pancakes and black coffee. And uh, when we first met, um, she had a plastic shopping bag full of these old photo albums, and in those photo albums she had dozens, if not hundreds, of clippings of hers from the 50s and 60s when she was a massive pinup star in all the, the uh, gentlemen's magazines, as they called them. Um, relics of a very different time and she uh she was a farm girl who did the thing as a teenager where she walked out the door and said i'm going to go be a big star and was and then came back to the midwest and now she's 83 she was at my book launch the other night with me and we signed books together and chatted and caught up um but she has an amazing story and she the world she lived in certainly wasn't perfect by any means um 
bullying and sexism and all these things. But she she made um, a beautiful, a kind of astonishing, to use that term, story. And uh, and I see that as inspirational because I hope the world gets fixed sometime soon, but I kind of doubt it will. And and I I hope, for instance, my daughter, who's four years old, can thrive and flourish and find meaning even in an imperfect world when she grows up. Right. And, and I hope, too, that we stop this marginalization of elderly people because, you know, many people do kind of just brush them off as an elderly person and yeah. forget they've got this rich, in most cases, history behind them. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly run into many myself who've just had the most amazing lives, um, sure. you know, and gone through the, the most astonishing uh, times, really. Oh. oh, yeah. I mean, I uh, and I make fun of myself in that story for doing it to <laughs> someone else who was elderly earlier in my life. But I, the deal I kind of made myself with myself was that I, I wanted to stop being quite so surprised when I read people's obituaries. <laughs> because I kept learning. I'd know someone for five years, and then they'd, they'd pass away, and I'd read their obituary and go, oh, my gosh, she was a war hero. Or she was, you know, did, did, did these amazing things. So uh, everyone, I mean, there are, there are billions of us, but... but Everyone has a, a compelling story somewhere, and and often a funny story as well, which obviously I, I don't want to get too grim um, here. So. Right, right. So l- let's uh, go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about kids. <laughs> yes, Because yes, you, yes. write, you write about kids. You have a daughter. You say uh, being a father um, changed you, and, uh, you know, people do say that. Um, and you talk uh, about um, Internet chatter, about parenting, you say 99% of internet parenting chatter is just moral peacocking, which I yeah, loved. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then I, it made me think of friends that, that I have who got together. They're both writers. They have six children, and they both say that, uh, that it's usually the husband who writes about the family stuff. But he says it's like having a perpetual fountain of story collateral. So um, yeah. share with us what, what you enjoy about being a father, what you enjoy writing about uh, as far as kids go. Yeah, well, I, I think, so my daughter's four now, and um, I, there are two things that I find, I mean, there are countless things I find um, gratifying about it, but two things as a writer that I find to be very um, inspiring. And the one is that we are a narrative Right. I mean, that giraffes have long necks and the cheetahs are fast and, and we have our stories. You know, every every animal that survives and thrives in the world has things that help it to do that, um, to survive and to, to pass on its genes. And, and uh, you know, when you watch a little animal play, they tend to play the thing that's most important to their species. You know, the little lion is stalking, you know, things. And um, little humans play with words. Um, and for anyone, whether or not you're a writer, to experience to live in a house with someone who will not shut up, for starters, <laughs> um, and it is just constantly playing with language, is um, it really, there's a sentence in that book where I, I say that with her, literally every sentence is an adventure. I have no idea where she's going to go with some of these things, mm. how she conjugates them, or what how she gets where she's going. Um, and that is, uh, to me, uh, one of the the best parts of being a parent. And the other is going back to the astronomy thing. Um, one of my favorite writers, Knausgaard, the Norwegian, he, he talks about you go away from your house, you're gone for a week on vacation, and you come back and there's a faint shimmer of strangeness, he calls it, right? Because you kind of see everything anew. Right. And kids are seeing everything for the first time. And there are really only two special times 
at least at our default settings, um, for us seeing the world. That one is the first time you see it, you really look, and then the last time you see it, you really look. You don't always know what's the last time, but you know the last time you look upon a loved one's face or something like that. Um, and what kids do is that they see things, everything anew, so everything is strange to them. Everything is kind of shimmering in that way. And when you're with them, they help you to see it as if for the first time, but before it's the last time uh, as well, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful perk that comes along with being a parent. Yeah, yeah, excellent. We need to take a quick break. Um, My guest is Matt Geiger. His new book is called Astonishing Tales, Stories and Essays. Uh, Your astonishment may vary is the caveat there. (laughs) So we'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning Seattle filmmaker, author, speaker, and activist, John DeGraff. An icon in the documentary film industry, John DeGraff has written and produced more than 40 films and authored three books, including the highly acclaimed Affluenza. His latest film, Torn Between Two Worlds, explores a thriving California city, striving to be a fully self-sustainable community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, December 9th, it's Talk With Your Animals Sunday with gifted animal communicator, medium, and Reiki master Darcy Pariso in the studio. Darcy can help you talk with and learn about your animal friends or help you connect with animal or human loved ones on the other side. So plan to call in for your free reading on Martha Norwalk's Animal World Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Conversations live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Real people, real life, real radio. Alternative Talk, 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And we're talking now with humorist, award-winning journalist, and award-winning author Matt Geiger, his new book, Astonishing Tales. And um, I want to ask you about one of the tales in the book, Matt. <laughs> you, took, you took a DNA test and uh, claimed that you are more Neanderthal than 84% of the population. Yeah. So I'm wondering what, what prompted you to take that test and what did you discover? Uh, did it change the way you feel about yourself? Yeah, well, you know, these, these are all the rage now, you know, because someone... Uh, they, you see, you hear the story where someone they think they're Italian and they take it, and it turns out they're you know a marmot or something. I don't know something that's not at all right. what they thought. Right. And uh, I, 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 I am the same as every single other person on earth, and I'm trying to uh, find my own identity and create my own identity to some extent. And um, so I thought it would be fun. Um, and partially, you know, I was uh, one of the themes in the book, and just the theme in, in many of our lives is that I, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to feel connected to other people, you know, and not necessarily the people that are close to me uh, geographically or, you know, in terms of belief systems or whatever, but just to connect with others. And that 
them. And nearly everyone is surprised at some point. I was surprised by um, how much Neanderthal DNA I have. Um, but what it drove home, and I, and I really don't think I'm quixotic or you know, overly optimistic, but I think this is true, is the narrative we're always given is about just how much we hate each other. And there are all these arbitrary lines, and there are different groups of people, and you know, one group doesn't like another group, and on and on and on. And what I was amazed by when I started digging into the DNA, and then you, you go off on a, a tangent and you start learning about human history and then human evolution, is that despite all of the violence and all of the hatred and all of those things, which are very much real, um, our species is incredible because they can't stop falling in love, getting together, having babies, and <laughs> even between Neanderthals and modern homo sapiens. I mean, it is truly inspiring when you think about it in that way. So once again, it was an attempt to look at something in a different, slightly different light. Right. I, I loved how you started off that um, that story, that essay. Uh, you say detecting the blood of Englishmen used to be the work of cranky giants who lived atop right. stalks that sprouted from magic beans. And of course, now we've got DNA tests. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, so I want to ask you about... Um, humor and uh being you know i i it's one thing to be funny and make quick marks uh, quick remarks at a dinner table or something sure. but i think it's something entirely different when you are actually writing humor and yeah. um and i also found a quite well let, let me ask you about that humor first because does it come naturally to you um when you sit down to write are you constantly thinking is this funny or how do you measure that for yourself yeah, and I, I do, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly funny or clever, but I, I do, um, I think things are funny, which I suppose is the first step toward trying to be funny yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think with humor, what you want to do is not just make someone laugh at your little joke or quip. You want to do what a good horror story would do, where it makes someone scared for a week, you know, <laughs> out in their real right. life. And that's kind of what you want to do with humorous writing, is make people laugh more even later. And so I found this quote by uh, Dostoevsky, one of your favorite writers, as we discussed at the beginning of the segment. It said, if you wish to glimpse inside a human soul and get to know a man, just watch him laugh. If he laughs well, he's a good man. What, what does that quote mean to you? Yeah, well, I, I, I do think, uh, I mean, I don't want to uh, overstate it too much here, but uh, humor, laughter uh, is, is universal. I'm not familiar with any culture that doesn't laugh. <laughs> you know, I right. think human beings just laugh. And I, I'll never forget, for instance, I'll never forget the first time um, my daughter laughed. She was a baby, and we were out in the yard, and this dog that she'd grown up with flipped over on its back and started wriggling around in the grass on its back. And she burst out laughing. She was, a, you know, a tiny baby, burst out laughing and could not right. stop laughing. Right. Um, and it was funny to her because it was different. It was something that she was familiar with that she suddenly saw from a different angle. So going back to the thing we've been talking about, that's what was funny. And, and the last thing I'll say about that, I, I just want to say, peop, sad things can be funny too. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and, and that's something that I think is important to understand about humor as well. Yes, yeah. And there's nothing better than hearing a child laugh. I just have to throw oh, that in there too. <laughs> you don't even know what they're laughing at half the time, but it's still funny. <laughs> Yes. So very quickly, there's a, an essay called The Monkeys of New England. And in there you say, we are loose, formless ideas. We're, we're all similar. We're, we are loose, f 
formless ideas. We each possess something essential, but it's all buried deep within, beneath layer after layer of malleable forms. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's going back to the, the understanding the limits of our understanding. Um, we are, um, ooh, I'll, I'm going to bring it back to Tolstoy. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Um, perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> no, he has his final novel, which is certainly not his most well-known. It's called Resurrection. And, and in it, um, it's about someone who's, who's a woman who's just treated awfully by society, and she's just locked up. And, um but in it, he's talking about being good and bad, and he, and he says there's this idea that we think some people are good and some people are bad. But the fact is, every single person who's alive on the planet Earth has the capacity to be good or bad in every single moment. Yeah, love um, it. And I think that's enormously inspiring, actually, if you think about it. Right, right, absolutely. And so a final uh, thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today, Matt. Um, I, I hope um, that whether it's this book or any other book that they, they read over the holiday season. I hope, I hope uh, people read a lot of good books, hopefully also mine, uh, and that those books help them see things a little differently and better and maybe laugh a little more as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us, Matt. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And we can find out more about Matt's uh, work at geigerbooks.com, geigerbooks.com. And his new book is called Astonishing Tales, Stories and Essays, with a caveat, your astonishment may vary. <laughs> and he, he talks in there really about so many things, uh, parenting, as we talked about, competitive axe throwing, death, the holidays, dandelions, etc. And uh, again, you can find out more at geigerbooks.com. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. You can find me at uh, 1-800-495-7617, 800-495-7617. You can find me on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair and on Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And, of course, we've got more than, uh, way more than 600 podcasts that you can go back and listen to on uh, a huge variety of topics. So our website is conversationslive.net. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.